Okay, praise the Lord. Praise Him indeed. Good morning, everybody. Um, as usual, it's a pleasure to, to really minister the Word of God. Um, anybody who is new, you've, been, you've not, never been to KIC Lubo and you just happen to be here. Um, oh, okay, welcome. Welcome. We're so glad to have you. Um, and we believe uh, you will be blessed. Um, and yeah, before you disappear at the end of the service, say hello to at least a few people <laughs> so that we can give you a nice warm KIC Luboa welcome. Amen. Okay, so everybody here is more or less uh, part of the family and um, we are um, here on a cold, okay, warm uh, morning to really receive and partake of the word of God. So we start a new series, as Lynette has, has said. We are going to start a new series that will take us really into this month, July, and into August. And this series is the parables of Jesus. The parables of Jesus. This is really short stories that Jesus told while he was here on earth um, that speak of the kingdom of God. And there are several parables contained mainly in the Gospels of Matthew, and Luke, that's where most of the parables come. And each Sunday, we're going to be looking at one parable at a time. So I think it's, it's a good moment to just pray into this series and just pray into, um, into this time and this season as we go through this parable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that you love us. And as we have sung, that you are a God there's no other God like you. Thank you that we can relate to you, we can be in relationship with you. And Lord, as we think through your word today and in the coming weeks, particularly concerning these parables, we just pray for discernment, we pray for revelation to flow freely in us. We pray that the words that are spoken will be words that come straight from your heart and that will reside in our hearts to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So let's kick start with a, a simple question. Why did Jesus use parables? Why did he tell parables? Um, and it's an interesting question. It's actually a question that his disciples asked him. Why do you speak to people in parables? And essentially, it was to give us knowledge about the kingdom of God. Up until the time that Jesus came, no one had entered the kingdom of God. It was a strange concept. People just knew there was a land coming or there was promises coming, but they were not very clear about many things. And so um, at that time, and indeed even today, it's to really give us knowledge about the kingdom of God. So we really study parables to get revelation about the kingdom of God, about, first of all, God himself, our God, our loving Father, about how the kingdom of God functions um, how to be prosperous and fruitful in this kingdom. And this knowledge is very, very vital. Many, many people enter into the kingdom of God. Uh, we enter by salvation when we are born again. We enter into the kingdom of God. But I have observed, um, to my concern, and many ministers um, in, this, you know, in this time have also observed that many people are in the kingdom but not fruitful, not prospering, um, struggling. And mostly, mostly it's because of lack of knowledge, lack of knowledge about the kingdom. You can really get stuck and suffer because you lack knowledge, okay? Um, one time I, I was, you know, I was working for a company 
and I had to go for a meeting or a visit somewhere. So I borrowed the company car. And this was a time when, you know, um, the, car, the particular car that I borrowed was a four-wheel drive. This was a time when four-wheel drives were the old models. Eh? I'm going to explain a little bit about that in a moment. But basically, I took the car and I rushed off. Now, it was one of those days where it had rained in Kampala very heavily, and where I was going was a muddy road. So I drove, um, and I reached somewhere on this muddy path, and then I got stuck because there was a lot of mud. I literally got stuck in, in the mud while, while driving. So what I would do, because instinctively when you get stuck, you press on the accelerator. I think those who are aware of driving, you press on the accelerator. So I pressed on the accelerator, which is what I knew to do, and I sank into the mud. And the more I pressed on the accelerator, the more I went into the mud. And I, you know, I kept on pressing, thinking I'm getting out, but I was just digging myself deeper and deeper into the hole. So in sheer frustration, I called the transport manager and was like, I'm stuck, can you send somebody? <laughs> So he told me, he asked me, have you engaged the four-wheel drive system? And I'm like, what's that? <laughs> I was like, okay, Monica, step out of the car. <laughs> so you need to get out and go to the wheel cups, because these were the old types where you actually go and manually you know, set them. You go to the wheel cup, the front wheels, and you set them up. You know, there's something that you have to adjust. Then get back in the car, there is a gear. I had never known what the gear was for. I thought, okay, maybe it's just there for whatever. You know, I never really gave it much thought. And he said, once you've engaged that, now press on the accelerator gently. And I did that, and immediately, immediately, I got out of the hole, and I was able to drive off. Just like that. And so, you know, the, the, the issue here is that I didn't, it's not that I lacked knowledge about how to drive. You know, because they gave me the car knowing fully well that I had a driving license, I knew how to drive, so I had knowledge about driving. The problem is I lacked specific knowledge about the situation that I was in. You understand? So lack of knowledge can get you stuck. <laughs> That's a very good demonstration. So there are many people in the kingdom of God who are really stuck, they are struggling. It's not that they are not in the kingdom. And it's not as if God has not blessed them, given them the car or whatever. But it's really because they have limited knowledge. God himself says this, my people, my people, they perish because they lack knowledge. Not they lack prayer, not they lack Bibles, but they lack knowledge. Daniel 11.32 says the complete opposite. It says the people that know their God, that means they know God, they know his ways, they know how his kingdom functions, the people that know their God shall be strong, and do great exploits. So lack of knowledge results in perishing. Knowledge results in exploits. Amen? So starting from today, uh, for the next, uh, next few Sundays, we're going to focus on the parables of Jesus because they give us tremendous, tremendous knowledge uh, about how the kingdom works, how we can, you know, knowledge that we can practically use to really ensure that we navigate um, through the kingdom in our day-to-day -day lives um, and we are fruitful. Now, many of these parables are going to be familiar to us, okay? Many of these parables are taught from the time that we are in children's church or Sunday school, whatever it's called. So we are very familiar with them. But really, um, I encourage us to pay very close attention to them. It's important to be reminded of these things. Remembrance helps us to establish the truth in our hearts. You might know it in your mind, but it's important that we establish these truths in our hearts. Uh, we establish the knowledge of truth in our hearts, as well as, 
you know, um, remembrance or reminding ourselves of these things helps to strengthen our faith. Our faith can be strong um, and can be stirred up and can enable us to do what needs to be done in the kingdom. So today we're going to begin with a parable of a father and his two sons. The parable of a father and his two sons. It's commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. But I have deliberately called it the, father of the, father and, the parable of the father and his two sons because it's not just about one character. Um, and we're going to be looking at the other characters that are often not so much focused on. We, we tend to focus very much on the son who left, but it's important to look at the other two characters, the father as well as the son who stayed home. So let's go to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, this is where the parable is found. Luke chapter 15. And we're going to go straight into verse 11 because that's where this parable begins. And Jesus continued, okay? Jesus continued saying, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and then set off for a distant country. Now, it's very unusual for a father to give away his estate while he's still alive. Estates are usually handed down or they're handed out when somebody, the owner, actually passes on. Now, in this case, it's, it's, it's uncommon, it's, you know, it's, it's strange. But here's the father giving his son the share of the estate. And then shortly afterwards, the son chooses to leave home. What is amazing in this passage is the father never actually stopped the son from leaving. And there's a, there's a key lesson to be learned here. You know, if you want to have your way in the kingdom of God, okay, God will not stop you. Our God in his love for us, he loves us so much that he allows us to make choices. He allows us to make choices. And some of those choices might be wrong choices, some of them might be right choices. He will not stop you from making choices. Now, the Garden of Eden is a classic example. Just two people in the garden. God could have stopped Adam and Eve from making the wrong choice but not, by not putting that tree of good and evil in the garden. But he put it there deliberately so that they would have a choice. They would have a choice to either follow him freely out of their own, out of their own free will or they would have a choice to not follow him out of their own free will. So God respects your free will. He respects your ability to choose. And Jesus is revealing something very important about the love of our Heavenly Father in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a chapter about love. And one of the characteristics of love is that love does not insist on having its own way. So if you want to do what you want to do, God will not stop you. He'll provide you with the wisdom to make the right choices, but he will not force you to make that choice. And this places tremendous responsibility on us as citizens of the kingdom of God to make right choices, to make wise choices. And so, as we see shortly in this story, there are consequences to the choices that we do make. Um, the younger son makes a series of bad choices. Choice number one is he separates himself from the father. Okay, he says he went to a distant country. He went to a distant country. That means no contact with the father by phone, by email, by fax, whatever. No contact whatsoever. No dependence, no reliance on the father. No relationship with the father. Completely 
disconnected, very distant. And by the way, father, the biblical meaning of the word father means source. It means source. So essentially, this man cut himself off from his source. He was not very wise. It's kind of like taking a bucket of water out of Lake Victoria and then going to the Sahara Desert to leave. <laughs> Why don't you just live next to Lake Victoria? Then you have continuous supply of water, continuous access to water. So that was the first wrong choice he made, distancing and separating himself from his father. He, he then makes additional wrong choices. He squanders all his wealth, all, his, in, you know, all that he had, all that he got from his father, he squanders all that in wild living until he had nothing left. Nothing, no savings, no investments, no plans for the future. There was absolutely nothing left. And sure enough, when a crisis hits, then he's severely, severely affected. The crisis came in the form of a famine, and it really forced him to think. You know, this is the advantage of crises in our life. They help us think. So don't be too quick to pray away that crisis. <laughs> think. Okay, so in this famine, and it's a, it's a famine that, was, that hit across the entire country, this young man began to think. In verse 17, he says, he thought to himself, or he came to his senses, so obviously he was thinking. He came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? How many of my father's servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. Okay? So basically the son came to his senses. And we say he repented. He repented. This is a very good picture of what repentance is. What is repentance? Now some people think that repentance, and this has been traditionally taught in many, many churches, that repentance is really telling God how sorry you are, and listing all your sins, and looking very, feeling very guilty and um, sad about your sins, and hoping that in all that, because of really the extent of your guilt and feelings and all these things, that God will forgive you. That's not repentance. That really isn't repentance. True repentance, true repentance is about turning around. It's about turnaround. It's a turnaround from bad to good, both in mind and in action. It is initiated when we focus on the goodness of God. It is initiated when we focus on the goodness of God, not in your badness and your guilt and your terrible situation and circumstances and results. It's really initiated when you focus on the goodness of God. In Romans chapter 2 verse 4 it says it's the goodness and the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's when you see how good God is, you're like, surely why am I suffering in this situation? Let me turn around. And this is what the young man said. It says, he thought about his father's goodness and mercy. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? There's a translation, the literal translation that says this, it says, how many of my father's servants have super abundance of bread? Think about this. You know, it's very, very unusual for an employer to hire servants and give them super abundance. Very unusual. If you're employed, typically what your employer does, what they pay you, 
is what the average industry pays you, right? So they scan around and they see what does the industry pay, somebody with your qualification, somebody with your position, and they typically pay you that amount, or they might pay you a little bit more if they're, if they're a very good employer, or they might pay you less, or they might pay you very, very much less. <laughs> but generally there's an industry average, and that's what most employers tend to use when they're paying out. But in this case, the father paid his servant super abundance, super abundance. So the father's generosity really is an example of God's heart towards us. It paints a brilliant picture of God's heart towards us. Our heavenly father manifests his grace towards us in super abundant ways, super abundant, not just abundant, but super abundant ways. And there are many scriptures, there are many scriptures that talk about this. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, chapter 1 rather, it talks about um, God has lavished, lavished out his grace towards us, his favor, his love, he has lavished them. You know, lavish is not giving out in small pieces. It's literally just pouring and pouring and pouring. In James chapter 1, it says he gives generously, generously, without blame, without reproaching, in uh, John chapter 3, he talks about, he gives his spirit, his spirit given without measure, not holding back, without measure. Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about God is rich in mercy and loves us with a great love, not a stingy love, great love. And these are the descriptions that we have about our heavenly Father. We need to get hold of this revelation of God and his generosity. The fact that he's a God who operates in super abundance when it comes to us. I've been to several Christian fellowships where many people don't understand this. And when they pray to God, it's as though they are praying to a God of scarcity and moderation. A God who scarcely gives, and when he gives, he gives in moderation. That's not really a full revelation of God's generosity. We should see God the way he truly is. As his beloved sons and daughters, really, we should approach God with a confidence, <clears throat> with confident of his grace towards us and his love towards us, confident that he's really willing to give us and able to give us more than we can possibly ask. It may seem like a small thing, but it's very, very significant. The way you see God and the way you approach God really matters. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, whoever comes to God must believe that he is and he rewards those who diligently seek him. Must believe that he is. You must believe that he is. He rewards those who diligently seek him. One of the reasons why you may be struggling in your prayer life and not seeing the results of your praying is because of the way that you are approaching God. Are you approaching God as he is? Or are you approaching God as he isn't? This verse, Hebrews 11:6, says we must come to God believing that he is, that he is who he says about himself. What does he say about himself? He says, I am. Do you believe that he is? Do you believe he is? Do you believe he is generous? He's rich in mercy. He's superabundant in grace. Do you believe that he's all the things that he says that he is? If you've been coming to God as he is not, then according to this verse, you will not be rewarded. To put it plainly, your prayers 
are likely to be hindered or not work. So that's how the kingdom of God works. So this young man comes to his senses, let's move on, and thinks how good and generous his father is, and then makes a choice to go back to his father. And this is another aspect of repentance, by the way. It results in action. It results in action. Action that turns away from self and trying to solve my own problems in my own way. Action that leads back to God and relying on God and focusing on God. Repentance, by the way, is not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time thing. You know, we do it continuously. And when, when I got a personal revelation of this, it, it really opened my eyes into the way, into how to walk a better life as a Christian. I've, tremend, I've, you know, I've benefited tremendously by continuously looking for opportunities for repentance. So when I studied God's word, for example, when I studied the scriptures in my personal time, I always asked myself question, questions such as, how can I change? How can I change my thinking in view of the passage that I'm reading? How can I change my behavior in view of what I'm seeing in this passage of what I'm reading? How should I do things differently so that I can align with what God is really speaking through this passage? I can align with what God wants me to do in this passage. That's the heart that is continuously seeking or continuously focused on repentance. And it really helps in, in our growth. Because when you seek, you will find. Amen? So back to the son in verse 20, he arose... Okay, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice the father's response. I really want us to focus on the father's response. He saw his son from a distance and yet he was able to recognize him from a distance even from a distance. You know, this son was not the same way that he had left. He probably had lost a lot of weight. Okay, if you've been in land or famine, you've been sitting with the pigs because that's where he ended up, you have lost a lot of weight. He was dirty, he was filthy, he was basically unrecognizable, but his father saw him from a distance and recognized him. And not only was he able to recognize him, but he really was stirred with compassion for him. He was so delighted to see him back that he ran towards him, which is unheard of. It's very unusual for a father to run. Most of the time, it's sons who approach fathers. He ran towards him. And he didn't even listen to his confession. If you notice, he didn't actually pay much attention to his confession. In fact, he interrupted it. Because if you compare what the son was prepared to say and what he actually said, the father actually interrupted his confession. He completely overlooked the young man's sins. He didn't ask about the money wasted. He didn't ask what this young man had done with the money. He didn't ask him to apologize and really grovel. He did none of that. God rejoices when sinners come back to him. He's not passive about it. He's not just thinking, okay, finally you're back. He literally rejoices. That's the picture that is being shown here. He's actively rejoicing. And not just him. It says there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that turns back. And so Esther was speaking this morning. She was giving a word to somebody who may be, might be overloaded with guilt, 
um, and struggling with guilt. This is a picture that you need to imprint on your heart. The Father welcomes you without reservation. Amen. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then they began to celebrate. Now keep in mind all the things that the father is giving to the son. Okay, the robe, the, you know, the, the ring and all these things. They actually belong to the father. Remember, the son had taken everything. So now the father is like, bring everything, you know, bring the robe. And it's not just the robe, it's the best robe. <laughs> the, the ring, the sandals, all these gifts just pours out on his son. And each of these gifts, by the way, has meaning. The best robe is not just an ordinary robe. It represents Jesus' righteousness that we get as sinners when we come back instead of our righteousness. The Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags. And the Lord gives us the righteousness of Jesus. The ring represents the name, the authority, and the power of Jesus. The name, the authority, and the power of Jesus. So in that time, the culture of those, that time, you had a ring, and that ring was like almost a stamp, you know, like a seal that you used. Uh, when you wrote letters, you, you know, you imprinted the, the emblem on that ring to represent the authority and the power behind the name of the family. The other gifts, the sandals, the fattened calf, and yes, even the party, let's not forget about the party, it demonstrated God's love for his son, or rather God's love for us, how much he values us, how much he celebrates us. Now, this story could have ended there with this celebration, but then there's another character that's involved, and that's the older son. So meanwhile, verse 25, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he had music, and he had dancing. Eh? So this was really a mega party. We're not talking about a small family gathering. We're talking a major, major party. He had all this from outside, music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants, and he asked him, what was going on? And, this, and the servant replied, your brother has come back and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now, here's an interesting observation. This older son had lived with his father all these years or all this time, but he was very disconnected from the father. So much so that he had to approach the servants in order to understand what was going on in the house. disconnected from the father. You have to go through the servants. He didn't go directly to the father to ask. He went through the servants. And what does that tell us? It's possible to be in the kingdom of God and not be connected to God. You get your messages through servants of God. It's possible to even work hard and labor for God and not know him. And this was a problem with the older son. But then he had another problem. Let's go to verse 28. The older brother became angry. Okay, when he heard about the, the reason for the celebration, he became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property 
with prostitutes. When he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. So the son had a second problem, that he was very self-righteous. He believed he was really better off than his son that had left, the younger son that had left. The older son really represented the religious leaders of those days. If you read this entire chapter, you'll notice that Jesus was speaking when the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law were getting very agitated because Jesus had a very large following of sinners. So this older son was supposed to represent these Pharisees, these teachers of the law and the religious leaders in those, in those days. But before we judge them too harshly, let's stop and think about them for a moment. The Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. I mean, these guys had zeal for God. Make no mistake about that. The problem is with zeal without knowledge. Okay? They were very knowledgeable about the Torah, the five books of the Bible. Actually, that was really their major, major focus. Five books of the Bible. And they so knowledgeable, they knew every scripture in those books. Can you even list the five books of the Bible in the order that they are in? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, is it Deuteronomy, is it Numbers? <laughs> okay, so, so give them a bit of credit. Eh? <laughs> I mean, these guys knew those books inside out. They believed, really, the way to please God. Remember I said they, were, they had a zeal for God. They, 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 they believed the way to please God and enter heaven was by obeying long lists of regulations and requirements in the law. That's how they believed access into the kingdom of God was. That's how they believed promotion in the kingdom of God was. And so they really took obedience to the extreme, to the extreme. They obeyed the Ten Commandments, because that's where the, first, the law first came down, was handed down, the Ten Commandments. And then they went on to focus on obeying the additional 600 plus commandments that were given to the Israelites. Then, as if that was not enough, they kept on adding to these commandments additional rules and additional commands so that they could clarify exactly what each of these commands was supposed to, how they were, each of these commands was supposed to be obeyed. So, for example, one of the commandments is to keep the Sabbath holy, which meant that essentially Jews were not supposed to work on Sabbath, and Sabbath typically began at a certain time on Friday and ended at a certain time on Saturday. So that was one of the commandments. Keep the Sabbath holy. So, to clarify this, the Jewish scholars created 39 separate categories of what work actually meant. And then they created additional subcategories and rules to continue further and clarify so in order to follow the rule of not working on the Sabbath, there was literally hundreds of sub-rules to follow. For example, you are not allowed to kill a housefly on Sabbath. Why? Because killing a housefly is categorized as hunting, and hunting is work. These are real examples, eh? A woman could not look at her reflection in the mirror on Sabbath. Because if you looked at a reflection in the mirror and you saw a gray hair, and you plucked out that gray hair, that is work. So, and then here's another one. If your house is burning down on Sabbath, 
You're not allowed to carry clothes out of your house, but you're allowed to wear those clothes. And so if you escape from your house wearing those clothes, technically it's not working. <laughs> you could actually live without breaking the law in that manner. And there were many other laws about how many steps you're allowed to take on the Sabbath, about how many letters you can write on the Sabbath. Not words, we're talking letters. And remember, this was a time before computers. You can't exactly go on the computer and say, okay, I've done 20 words or 30 words or, or how many letters. It was literally counting yeah, to the extreme. So these were the kind of laws that existed when Jesus came. And the teachers of the law would insist that every Jew had to follow them. You can imagine the burden that was on people. Plus, the Pharisees didn't just make up these laws. They followed them. They followed them, and then they insisted that people had to follow them. The result is that they were very, very legalistic in their approach towards the law, but they failed to see God who is revealed in the law, in the Torah. The result is that they, they worked hard. Make no mistake, they worked hard to obey the law, but they failed to recognize the need for grace and for mercy. And the saddest thing in all this is they worked hard to obey the law, but they completely missed God, completely. And sad to say, their system still exists even today in our churches. I had a testimony of a young woman, as recently as yesterday actually, I was reading a testimony of a young woman who pastored a church for several years here in Kampala, and her understanding of the Christian faith was really based on obedience to the rules and the requirements in the Bible. And so she introduced rules and regulations within the church to ensure that the congregation was also obedient so that the Lord could see, the God could see how obedient they were and bless them based on that obedience. And she made up many rules and many requirements. One of them, for example, she mentioned, she said, it was a requirement for everyone in the church to read at least 10 chapters daily from the Bible. Daily, 10 chapters. Aren't you glad you're in KIC Luboa? <laughs> and she had a congregation, eh? <laughs> I'm surprised she did, but she had a congregation. But the good news is she did get set free. I mean, her testimony was telling about her history. She did get set free. Man, we thank God for the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Really, we do. We should. In Christ and in God, we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. We are under the same grace and the same favor that this uh, father showed to his sons. And let me just say this, you know, like the Pharisees, the older son was very hardworking, was very zealous and very obedient, so we really cannot discredit him for that. And he mentioned it, you know, look at how he says it. This is another thing of concern. He says, I have slaved for you all these years and I've never disobeyed orders. Clearly, he was not a lazy person. But the problem was that work was something that he did as a duty or as an obligation, you know, something that he just does. But he didn't delight in it. He didn't enjoy it. He was so busy with the father's activities because he was in the father's estate. He was so busy looking after the father's property um, that he completely missed the father. And this is something that we need to watch out for in our own lives, where we become so busy in the father's business, whether it's in ministry, whether it's in activities in our home, whether it's uh, in, uh, in businesses out there, we are so busy with the Father's business that we fail to enjoy work. And we end up burdened and exhausted. And then, like the older son, 
we fail to enjoy God while we're actually working for him. This may come as a, as a surprise to some of you here, but work is actually supposed to be enjoyable. It really is. There's a picture in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 30 to 31, and, and the translation I'm going to use is the New American Standard Bible. New American Standard Bible. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 30 to 31. And it paints a very beautiful picture of the way that we should work with God. Proverbs 8, 30 to 31. It says this. Okay, and it's, okay the, the context that is talking about wisdom um, and all these things, but really there is a revelation you can get about how we work with God based on this passage. Proverbs 8, 30 to 31 in the New American Standard Bible. It says, um, New American Standard Bible. New American Standard Bible. It says, there I was beside him as a master workman, and I was his daily delight, rejoicing always before him. In other words, daily, every day, I was enjoying him. I was beside him. Rejoicing, verse 31, rejoicing in the world, not rejoicing wherever he has placed me, whether it's in the home, in the business, rejoicing in that, rejoicing in his earth, and having delight in the sons of men. In other words, enjoying the relationships that I encounter in my day-to-day -day work, um, wherever it is, whether it's home, church, ministry, or wherever it is. Enjoying and having delight in the sons of men. This is the picture of the way that work is supposed to be with God. It's called working when you're at rest. Is that you today? Are you looking forward to tomorrow? Are you dreading it? <laughs> Jesus invites us to come to him and find rest. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. You know, as we finish, there's a question that is often asked concerning the sons, and it is this, who needed to repent the most? <laughs> think about it, I'm not giving you the answer, but uh, think about it. Who needed to repent the most, the older or the younger son? You see, both of them were self-centered in different ways. They really needed to change their thinking. And what is clear in the entire story, and this I want to emphasize, what is clear in the entire story is that the Father, God the Father, I'm representing the Father here, he loved them both, and he showed grace towards both of them. See what he says to the older son in the concluding verses. This is what he says to the older son in verse 31. My son, the Father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Why? Because this brother of yours was dead, and now he's alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. We had to celebrate and be glad. There are two key things he says to the son. He says, you are always with me. You are always with me. In other words, the father was always present to the son. And God promises us the same promise. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. The question is, are you present to the Father? Are you living with him in delight on a day-by-day -day basis? Are you living and abiding in his presence with his fullness of joy? You are always with me. And then he says, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. And this is the same divine promise that he gives us from his word. He says, God's divine power has given us all things. He has given us all things through the knowledge of him. And there's that key word again, through the knowledge of him. So you receive God, you receive the things from God, and receive from God, you receive of God, 
through knowledge. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So a question for you to take as homework, and yes, there's homework. No, this is not a church of rules, but there is homework. <laughs> Something to meditate on during the course of this week. If you are to examine your life, okay, in what way are you like the older son, and in what way are you like the younger son? Because we can actually have a bit of both inside of us. We can identify with both. Like the younger son, we can sometimes go off and make our own choices. We can make wrong choices and make decisions that are contrary to God's word, independent of God, insisting on having our way. And then we end up reaping bad results. And then we can also be like the older son. We can be there working very hard, very hard for God in ministry, working hard for him in work, but really not enjoying him, doing all the things that you know how to do, but really not enjoying God. You feel angry and bitter and jealous even when others get blessed. That's the position of the younger son. So which ones are you? And what do you need to turn away from? Which ones do you need to turn away from? Either way, the father invites us to come to him. <clears throat> and he responds to our coming back to him with grace, with love, with mercy, and with celebration. So let's return to the Father wherever we are and find joy and delight in his presence so that we can live life to the fullness. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I'll stop here. And I'm, I pray and I hope that you've been blessed. I've given quite a lot to think about. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So let's just rise up on our feet and just thank the Lord for his word this morning. And so if you're here and maybe you really don't know what it means to be in the kingdom, you've just had these phrases and these words mentioned, you don't know what it's about, um, we can give you more revelation on that um, and we can talk you through that. Um, just after the service. But I want to pray really for everyone here. I want us to pray together that we learn to live in the presence of God. We learn to enjoy him because that's where we get our nourishment. That's where we get our fullness of life. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that through this parable, you have reminded us of so much, principally of your love for us, your grace, and super abundance heart that you have towards us. Father, we ask that your spirit, which is poured to us without measure, will help us to walk in light of the truths that we have learned, and will help us to really delight in you. I pray that in this coming week, as your children, your sons and daughters, as we go into this coming week, that we will continue with this heart of delighting in you, rejoicing in you, day by day. In Jesus' mighty name we've prayed. Amen. Amen. There's tea and coffee, which you're welcome to take. Um, say hello to someone. Um, and there's prayer. If you do need prayer, there's something that is on your heart you came in with this morning, or you just want more revelation about the word, we are here to talk you through. Otherwise, have a great week and be blessed. Amen. <laughs>